In the name of the one true and living God, creator, savior, sustainer. Amen. Trinity Sunday has come around again, and that makes me remember eighth grade gym classes. One of the rites of passage for the boys of the eighth grade was to climb a rope to the ceiling of the gym, let out a holler of triumph when you touch the ceiling, and then shimmy down. That was the idea, at least. But I was one of those less gifted in shimmying. I'd get up perhaps two-thirds of the way, feel my grip loosen, then return to the gym floor in defeat. I kept doing it, trying to get as high as possible till my hands started to chafe and I had to give up. Preaching on the Trinity is rather like that. You keep trying. Goodness knows I've been trying for 50 years. But never have I felt like letting out a holler of triumph. The truth is, this is a Sunday when a slam dunk isn't possible. The whole idea of the Trinity is lost in a realm of religious experience denied me, denied all of us this side of heaven. And when I'm in heaven, I'll know what the Trinity is all about. And I'll have the words to express it too, except that everyone else in heaven will know as much as I do. And so a slam dunk sermon on the Trinity will be quite unnecessary. But even while we're earthbound, we know enough about the Trinity for our salvation. For we could hardly be Christians at all if we hadn't had an experience of God and God's goodness and power, of Jesus and his love for us and his self-offering. And we'd know none of this were it not that God's Spirit had come to us, come in us to enlighten us, inspire us, direct and open our hearts to know and love God and our Lord Jesus. We experience the Trinity in our life, are nourished by God, Jesus, and the Spirit, and that's exactly what we find in the Christian scriptures. For there is no doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament, just the experience of the Trinity. It only becomes difficult when you start to think, what's the relationship between the three? In just the what way do they exist as separate persons of the Trinity, and how are they at the same time one, since there's certainly not three gods? Well, there's the rub of it all, as Hamlet said, meditating on another subject. It's when you start to worry yourself about how, what, and why of the Trinity, and tread where angels fear to go, or write a 500-page book, as St. Augustine did, and get a fierce headache. To dip into Augustine's book, I'll do it for you, 
There's every kind of way express, of expressing the meaning of the Trinity. He must have used some of these in sermons for his less sophisticated congregations. He gives the example of the equilateral triangle. One triangle with three equal sides. Now there's something that's three things and one at the same time. What can be so hard about the Trinity then? But is turning the Holy Trinity into a ge geometrical figure such a good idea? Well, maybe not. So let's try this. Think of a candle. There's a candle. It has a beeswax stem of it, or it used to. <laughs> it has a wick, and when the wick's lit, the beeswax melts, and you have a lighted candle. Three things. The beeswax, the wick, and the flame. And yet, they are one. Don't think very much of that, do you? I don't either. Augustine has another way of thinking about the Trinity, much more interesting. And it points to something I haven't said anything about so far, that if we've been made in the image of God and God has a Trinitarian form, there must also be a reflection of the Trinity within us as a part of our spiritual makeup. St. Augustine contemplates himself to find out what this might be. And nine books into his big volume on the Trinity, he thinks he's found something. We have minds, Augustine says, minds that question, that seek the truth, that exercise reason, that take flight in the adventure of thinking. Now from thoughts, and impressions which the mind is constantly generating, we acquire, little by little, knowledge. And knowledge is made up of bits and pieces of hard reality. At its best, knowledge is truth. And truth is a reflection of God, for God is truth. There is another part of ourselves, too, a third part, and that is love. It is a love that takes delights, delight in the truths that we've acquired. Love connects truth to truth and makes out of these truths a world of love and a world of loving objects. I won't go farther with St. Augustine into this thin air of speculation, but I think you can see where St. Augustine is going. He believes that these three properties which he finds in any human being are a reflection of the divine trinity. The mind, being the source and origin of all thought and feeling, may be likened to God. The knowledge and sensations the mind has, been, has led us to discover in the world about us are, for St. Augustine, thought made manifest, thought incarnate and are comparable to the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate Christ. And finally, love, that gives meaning and beauty to all these ideas, may be seen to be the work of the Holy Spirit within us.
I mention St. Augustine's understanding of the presence of the Trinity within us to show you two things. One is that the doctrine of the Trinity is something that's fascinated theologians down the century. And they didn't mind if sometimes their thoughts led them into rabbit holes. For every good theologian chews on the bone of the Trinity in the hope of finding the marrow within. The second thing is this, that with Augustine, you have someone who's tried to find a Trinitarian presence within each of us. This means that instead of throwing up our hands in despair of ever understanding the Trinity, we can just look within to discover the form of the Trinity in our spirit. And given that we're made after the image of God, we should be able to find that Trinitarian shape. I want to introduce you now to a way of thinking about the Trinity that's become quite popular with a number of theologians, some well-known to you, like C.S. Lewis and Richard Rohr. But to do this, I have to introduce a word with which you may be unfamiliar, perichoresis. Last week, Will taught you the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach. This week, you get a Greek word, perichoresis. And as Will had you say ruach, why don't I ask you to say perichoresis? Oh, I probably should tell you what it means. Well, if you look up the verb from which the word comes in a Greek dictionary, a very big Greek dictionary, the translation you get is rotation. And the word itself seems to mean to come around and to go around. So think of a circle, maybe. But theologians haven't been in the least hampered by that narrow meaning. And even back in the time of St. Augustine, Greek theologians enlarged that meaning to refer to the divine interpenetration of the three persons of the Trinity to suggest that what God does, Christ also does, and so does the Holy Spirit. Because their activities flow back and forth since their intentions are all one. And you have this form of Trinitarian presence within you also, as the well-known verse spoken by Christ about his disciples reminds us, that we all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be one in us. But modern theologians have taken the idea of coming and going around which perichoresis can mean, and they've taken that word on a joyride, and have suggested that between the three persons of the Trinity, there's a kind of dance. Exactly what that dance would be like, I really don't have any idea. I can't dance myself out of a wet newspaper. But I did talk to my wife, Laurel, who's taken ballet in the past, and she suggests that these ideas point to what dance within the Trinity might be. There's coordination, 
and trust. There's movement and beauty in dance. There's a deep awareness of the other dancers and sensitivity. All of these things would go into the intimacy of the relationship God, Christ, and the Spirit would have with each other. Perhaps remembering what the tango is like or a pas de deux will give you the idea of what theologians who use perichoresis have in mind. I like this notion because it gives movement and beauty to the life of the Trinity and gets you away from the sterile categories that spoil the way we usually talk about the Trinity. All that about persons and substance and being and the fearful Greek terms that drive seminarians crazy. The reason why I like this idea is very well expressed by C.S. Lewis when he writes, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a drama, almost a kind of dance. If theologians feel free to use perichoresis as they wish, then I guess I can. I told you already that the most basic meaning of the word means to rotate, then it can mean to come, to go, and finally it's been made to mean dance. So why don't I use these things I do know something about, where turning and coming and going are involved, and thinking about what dance between the members of the Trinity is like when I play a piece of music. So imagine this. I begin playing the piano with one line of melody. In that line lie the motives and melodies for the rest of the piece. Then my other hand comes in with complementary melody, interpenetrating the first one, playing on the ideas the first tune set out. And then emerging between my two hands, a third melody, played a bit with my left hand and then with my right, that gives delight and unexpected harmonies to the other two lines, weaving in and out of the other two. Now that's my kind of dance. And I'd say it'll do for a description of perichoresis. The end result is just what you know to be true of the persons of the Trinity. Harmony, balance, the subtle exchange of thought expressed in the music. And dare I say it, humor too. As I end this sermon, I want to leave you with a very important aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity that came to me when I was thinking about the tango. Gender in the Trinity is no longer a side issue. It is emergent and moving completely into the mainstream. The language we've used of God, God is Father, the fatherhood of God, and the language used of the Spirit, referring to the Spirit as with the male pronoun, like the translation we heard of the Gospel this morning, can no longer be taken for granted. 
And it's high time this discussion has begun because in a tradition like the Episcopal one, there is a process for welcoming the female into the idea of God. And it begins in a way something like this. For a doctrine to change and expand in a real and fundamental way, it has first to start with the way people pray and talk about God. When people have prayed to God our Mother as we have done for so long to our Father, then there will be a natural groundswell of familiarity that comes from hearing people talk about God as Mother. And we'll have heard people talk about it in podcasts, lectures, books, even in sermons where the topic is treated from every possible point of view. Without being treated as a trend or a passing fashion. Theologians will see the fatherhood of God with new eyes and look anew at the ancient scriptural texts. General conventions of the church will discover, discuss it further, hammering out statements, setting out position papers, our prayers and prayer books will start to reflect this groundswell of devotion, and slowly but definitely change will be made. But we have to keep our eyes open to changes in our society. For the duality of father and mother, male and female, is rapidly becoming more complex as we come to know the great variety through which people express their sexuality. It would be a shame to have worked hard to see our prayer life and our theology come so far only to have our experience of human sexuality enlarged so much in the meantime that our hard-won father-mother inclusion could seem passé or irrelevant. So, your homework should you want any, is this. Listen to your prayer. How do you naturally pray to God? With what sentiments does your experience of God provoke in you? How do you use female language when you pray? See where your devotion leads you. Whatever you discover, will be part of the change that will be reflected in the way we Christians talk about the, the Trinity in times to come. And in the process, whether you're aware of it or not, you will become part of the history of Christian theology. For all good theology first started out as prayer. And now... May God, our Creator, plant in us fertile seed. Christ, our Savior, make his friends ours. And the Holy Spirit ever delight and inspire us. Amen.